I have some good news and some bad news for you today. The good news is that at the judgment seat of Christ in eternity, we learn that no good deed performed by God's grace will go unpunished. That's what the BMOD teaches us, the judgment seat. No good deed performed by God's grace is going to go unpunished. That's the good news. The bad news is that on earth, the opposite is quite often true. On earth, no good deed goes unpunished. I said unpunished there. I meant rewarded. Unrewarded in eternity. And reward, obviously the other dominates my thinking. In eternity, no good deed goes unrewarded. Now, none go unpunished. For example, a buddy of mine decided to enter politics. I'll never forget it. We were at lunch. And he looked at me and he said, I feel compelled by the Lord to enter politics to make a difference. And I said, what? And then I asked him, are you ready? Are you ready to stand strong when all the ridiculous and unfair attacks rain down on you and on your family? And he said, I I am. I'm ready for that. Little did we know what all he would face. 24 years after that lunch, my friend has faced a stronger storm than either of us could ever have dreamed. In fact, an editorial in the most prestigious newspaper in America said this about my friend, and I quote, he faces an an orchestrated, unfounded witch hunt. An orchestrated, unfounded witch hunt. It has been horrible, but he has been stalwart through it all. My buddy has continued to shine the light, and he has ultimately won every battle, including every election. My friend has not been deterred in the good work because he knows that when you do something of worth, you must fight through attacks. By the way, that's the headline in your notes. Open your worship guide you got when you came in. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see that title. When you do anything of worth, you must fight through attacks. We all know this, right? In, in, our, in our parenting, in our work, even in our ministry at church, we face stormy days. Sometimes we get unfairly blasted. Unfair criticism is part and parcel of life on this earth, this side of the judgment seat of Christ. So we must learn to be stalwart through it all. Thankfully, we have somebody to teach us how. The Old Testament leader Nehemiah teaches us how to stand strong through life's storms. Turn in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 4. This is so cool. Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's read verses 1 through 3. You'll find Nehemiah right after Ezra, just before Esther. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? When Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up and went there building, by the way, he spoke like that. I don't know if you know it or not. Uh, He would break down their stone wall. (laughs) Nehemiah and a diverse group of Jews that are very dedicated to the Lord are doing something really important. They're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, but the work is mocked before these powerful people. You see, these are officials of the Persian Empire, and they have gathered together from all these different satrapies around to come and mock the the Jews in Jerusalem to make fun of what Ezra and Nehemiah are doing. Why mock? Folks, it's pretty simple, actually. These enemies of God are fearful, and fear makes people angry. Kids, it's the exact same dynamic as why your parents blow their top when you are late for curfew. They're scared, and fear makes people angry. Of course, Sanballat and Tobiah are dealing with a very serious kind of fear, political fear. Power concerns make people do really strange things. You see, Tobiah, he's controller of this area east of the Jordan River. Um, He's not called a governor in our Bible, but outside the Bible, other sources tell us he was the governor of Amman. Heshbon was the main city where everything centered around. Uh, Sanballat is the head, the governor of this area, Samaria. That had originally been settled by Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel. Hundreds of years before, they were deported 
deported by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had settled other peoples in here. So now it's a polyglot kind of group of people that really, really hate the Jews. What we know from other sources, get this, this is really important. The emperor Artaxerxes has allowed Governor Nehemiah of Judah to start minting coins here. You see, the earlier Persian emperors had allowed Jews to return to Judah from captivity, but they'd never been allowed to make currency before. Now, I know what you're wondering. In that, um, in that Black Panther accent of yours, you're asking, um, why does that matter so much? What is the big deal about minting coins? Right? Great question. Thank you. For, did you not like That was a great Black Panther accent. Why am I not getting any? I sounded like I was from Ethiopia. Come on. That was really good. Anyway. All right. Thank you. That's better. Uh, thank you for asking. Here's why it's such a big deal they're minting. Here's why it's such a big deal. In older civilizations, currency was not set according to international standards of any kind. Coins from some places were known as having more precious metal in them than coins from other places. Judah, think about this, operating under God's law that prohibits dishonesty in currency, Judah would have established the most reliable mint in the region. That would severely financially damage Ammon and Samaria. It would, it would hurt the amount of money they could make on exchange rates, especially as neither of these countries is known for its honesty. They attack Judah with mockery because they are consumed with political and financial fear. And Sanballat and Tobiah face another special kind of fear. They're afraid of God. We know their enmity is with Yahweh since they mention sacrifices. That's what they truly hate, worship of God. These, these walls are merely a step toward what they oppose. You, you can easily find their spiritual descendants today. Here, just do this test. Just post some article online uh, on some blog or forum that mentions God, and then read the comments that are posted by people down below. Just, just do it. You'll find that people now, just like then, are grudgingly okay if you're privately worshiping. But if you try to build any kind of presence, if you live out your worship in the public square, they will attack Almost 100 years ago, H.A. Uh, Ironside and P.J. Loazzo were, were studying Nehemiah together, just like we're doing here, as many of you are doing in your small groups. However, these wonderful forefathers of ours in the faith, they were studying Nehemiah by long-distance correspondence in the age of snail mail. Uh, Harry Ironside came from England to Dallas to teach at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Paul Loazzo uh, moved from France to Iowa to be a professor at a college there. When they got to chapter 4, where we are today, Dr. Loazzo wrote to Dr. Ironside, and he said this. I liked it so much, I put it in your notes. Our assemblies, he's talking about churches, are little fortresses for the defense and sallying out of truth. Let us build them strong, solid, and faithful. By some, an attempt is being made to pull down the barriers of truth and give up what we have. As I see these developments all around, I burn with jealousy for the truth we have. It makes us, in its practice, a people rejected by all, but who have the bread that all need. If we just live out in practice what the truth is, we will remain, no doubt, a small, unpopular people, but we will be to the end God's vessel of truth to His whole church on earth, and that will be 10,000 times better through eternity than to have been popular." Close quote. Being mocked doesn't matter. Being faithful to God's truth does. All God's people said? Now, let's look at the specifics of the mockery here in Nehemiah 4. The name-calling, that's pretty regular. Uh, you'll see that throughout history. Anytime somebody wants to discredit a group without really examining their merits, you just, you just call them a lunatic fringe and, and don't even try to look at what they think. Uh, now, Sanballat's history is actually pretty good. Nehemiah was confronted with burned stones and in mounds of rubble. This does appear impossible. In fact, the situation here reminds me of my favorite city in Germany. Uh, when I first visited Xanten, 
I was astounded by the rubble. You see, the cathedral in Xanten uh, in northwest Germany, the cathedral was very unwisely used during World War II as a place to store materiel. So the Allies, understandably, blasted it to bits. When I first got to that city, 40 years after World War II ended, the church members from that cathedral were still picking through the rocks and cleaning off the bricks so they could be reused. They were still working their way through it. But those dogged Germans, they stayed with it. And, and after a few more years, they had replaced every single brick. And that cathedral was once again standing strong over the bones of the early Christian martyrs who were buried underneath it. Nehemiah shows the same determination in the face of impossible odds, but he gets the whole population to work on it, and he finishes in only 52 days. Now, Sanballat's scoffing in verse 2 is, is accurate, but he doesn't account for God. He doesn't account for God's people. By contrast, Tobiah's taunt in verse 3, look at that one, that appears to be inaccurate. I mean, think about it. If Tobiah's taunt were true, he'd have no reason to be concerned. It, it's absurd. By the way, the sections of wall that we have uncovered in Jerusalem... They show Tobias' taunt is ridiculous. Those walls are very sturdy. They are very well built. In fact, some of the best built walls we find in Jerusalem. Remember, friends, Jesus tells his followers to prepare for this exact same kind of absurd mockery where what you're doing that is of eternal value and is very strong is depicted as foolish and knocked over by a fox. People are going to scoff at anything of God that, that they think will convict them. Read with me, Matthew chapter 5. You take the underlying text. We'll start in verse 11. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Verse 12, be glad and rejoice because great is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice the when. The when. This is a given. People will mock all things of God if in any way it convicts them. Mocking Christianity as a mental illness is simply the latest manifestation of this. All right? It's always been the case. It's always going to be the case until Jesus returns. But we can stand strong in the face of such nonsense. In fact, we can and should rejoice. We can even love those who try to shame us. We can and must stay stalwart and focused on the truth. The Jews in Jerusalem certainly weren't unhorsed by the shaming. Look, look, at, look at the next section, verses 4 through 6, where the people press on. Verse 4, listen our God, Nehemiah prays, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. Nehemiah prays. That is his automatic reaction. He turns first to the Lord who is over all. Is that your first reaction when you're picked on? This brings up one of the two serious problems we have today with Christians who claim to be persecuted. The, the number one problem is we're often picked on only because we're being antagonistic fools. Uh, we aren't persecuted for Christ as much as we're corrected for being jerks. The second problem is what's here. We don't turn to God first. Whatever else we do, and, and there are other things to do, as we're going to learn with Nehemiah, our first response should be to turn to Yahweh in prayer. Now, Nehemiah's prayer may seem harsh, but I assure you it is biblically appropriate. We already discussed this earlier in the book when Nehemiah prayed another one of these imprecatory prayers. But let me give you a quick reminder. Imprecatory prayers, that is prayers that call for judgment, are especially important. We see them a lot of times in the scripture in eras where absolute truth is unwelcome. 
By the way, that's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls, is imprecation. Uh, one, two, three, say imprecation. One, two, three, imprecation. That's your Latin word for the day. All right. Uh, we see lots of imprecation when people want to hold their own truths instead of God's absolute truth. In all times, when, when evil is called good, when the very idea of righteousness is persecuted, the Bible has the answer. In Scripture, God leads his people to employ these imprecatory prayers. By the way, the word, the word imprecation is Latin. It was made up later to describe these prayers. It, it combines a Latin word for in with a word for to pray. So you pray that God reveals truth in this situation. Sadly, very few people today understand imprecatory prayers and how important they are for times when truth is perverted. Few of us in this age pray according to God's truth. You know why? Usually it's because we think that, that imprecation is negative. It's not. Nehemiah knows better. He knows the focus of imprecation is positive. It helps us mortify sin because we're motivated by God's love. We want to be like this, this God who saves us. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's why we hate sin. That's why we pray imprecations. That's why we mortify sin, why we call it what it is, because God is just and he is righteous, and we want all people to enjoy the rewards of righteousness and avoid the consequences of sin. When the people got mocked, Nehemiah prayed. That's first. Secondly, they pressed on. The criticism meant nothing because the people had the will to keep working. Beautiful word choices here in the Hebrew. Um, look, look here in verse 6. Weitikashar uh, in verse 6. That's a, a wonderful word for something intricately tied together. Weitikashar. Now, obviously, this is describing more than just the wall, right? These people are bound together. Their physical teamwork is a reflection of their souls. That, that's why lev is used. Lev is the great Hebrew term for soul, mind, spirit, uh, strength, heart, uh, all the above. It's, it's the immaterial part of the human. Their souls are knit together here as surely as these stones are being mortared into the wall. That's what it means to have a mind to work. And it's especially unifying when the group has that mindset through adversity. When I was a lifeguard at Whitewater, uh, we tested and trained our guards by training them, uh, timing them as they had to swim against the waves. We would crank the wave pool up to its very highest setting, which made five-foot-high waves. They would, they would crest hard, and then we would put the guards at the very end of the wave pool, and then we'd hit the timer, and they would have to swim. And they had to beat a certain time to, to keep their job. It was really stirring. After a long day's work, it was always at the end of the day, all these lifeguards are around the wave pool, and they're cheering each other on, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're encouraging one another to make it. it it was just an awesome, it was an awesome picture of Wetika, Shar, and Leb. And the same thing should be true of us Christians, right? All the people you know, if they're doing anything of worth, they are having to swim through attacks. They're having to swim against the current. So what should we do? We should be cheering each other on. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. But, but the attacks tend to get more serious when you swim against the current. They do. Just look at the next section, uh, verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We'll never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When, when the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. As we put it on the right side of our notes, uh, the enemies go to the mattresses, a, um, <clears throat> a Godfather reference. Um, don't hear that in church much. They, they, hatch, 
they hatch a more extensive plot. Uh, in the wording of one U.S. president, this represents a true axis of evil. I want you to look again at the full map of Sanballat and his malevolent alliance here. What we've got are Ammonite enemies to the east, the Samaritans we already talked about to the north. To the south are these, these Idumean Arabic peoples, kind of a, a strange uh, group. Uh, Herod the Great would eventually come from that group of people in 400 more years. And over here are a Greek-speaking group of peoples that at this time the province is called Ashdod. It's the old Philistine territory, Jerusalem and Judah are absolutely surrounded by enemies. Now, why have, have these non-Jews become so unhinged all of a sudden? It's pretty simple, folks. Listen, you probably know this, but if you don't, listen carefully. When you refuse to bite on false narratives, it makes people who desire power and or who desire to sin really angry. When you refuse to bite on false narratives, it makes people really mad. Nehemiah contends with the true narrative. He says the Jews have a legal right to serve God and establish Jerusalem. And he's correct. But that doesn't fit the popular narrative of his neighbors. His neighbors believe that a strong Jerusalem is bad for business. They don't want Yahweh worship. They don't want believers in absolute truth in their area. And so they've made up this false narrative. Their false narrative is that the Jews have no right to exist in Judah. That's what they're pretending. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team sent me a really great note about Sanballat's plot here. Uh, he wrote me and said this, Wayne, people love their sins. The existence of a healthy Israel was like bringing a mirror into the region. It caused neighboring peoples to see their wickedness. Instead of becoming more righteous, they responded by trying to break the mirror, namely Israel. Same thing happens with the church in the USA today. This plot appears to be an even more serious version of what went down in Ezra chapter 2. The plan here is to use terrorism to stop the Jews and to stop them quickly before Nehemiah's connections that are back in the Persian capital of Susa can, can come and intervene. By the way, it's really pretty brilliant because they can, they can stop them illegally, follow their own narrative, and, and stop the truth. And, and then when the officials do arrive, they can claim ex post facto, hey, we, just, we had to intervene to stop this rebellion we, because nobody's, nobody's left to argue against it, and they can make up their own story. They also use psychological warfare here. Look at this. To foster fear, rumors are being spread through all the surrounding villages. They even appear to have made up a catchy song about how the Jews will fail. That's what's going on here in verse 10. This is a song. Uh, it doesn't translate well into, into ours, but it does in Hebrew. And this is a, a top 40 hit about how the Jews are going to collapse, right? This is serious. So what do the Jews do? Do they, do they run away? Do they go to ground? Do they whine? No. Look, they start flocking to Jerusalem in order to work harder on the wall. Notice in verse 12, Jews from the nearby towns keep arriving to help, and Nehemiah puts them to work. Verse 13, look at verse 13. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. The Jews adopt an aggressive defensive posture thanks to Nehemiah's stalwart leadership. Now look at this, look at this. In verse 14, Nehemiah only says of himself, this is in the Hebrew, it literally says, I saw, I rose, and I spoke. I saw, I rose, and I spoke. Now, now, my Bible renders that making an inspection, I stood up and said, which is fine. 
But other translations see Nehemiah arising in response to Jewish fear. For example, the New American Standard has it this way. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke. I must say that appears a better fit to me. Now, regardless of your translation, it is a fact that Nehemiah feels the need to rally the people to no longer be afraid. Like Winston Churchill would do two millennia later, Nehemiah uses language to inspire his people to fight for right. And fight they did. This is, this is all out. The ranged weapons are particularly aggressive. You notice this? They didn't just grab swords to use as a last-ditch, <laughs> no pun intended, effort as they came up into the wall. They have ranged weapons. They've got spears and they've got bows and arrows so that they can mow the murderers down before they even get to the wall. Nehemiah has excellent intel and he develops a system to protect the workers with a ranged defense. Again, the modern parallels are uncanny here. How many of you ever heard of Iron Dome? You've heard of Iron Dome. Raise your hands. Okay, if you haven't, it's a brilliant defense system that has frustrated thousands of ugly attacks on Israeli workers and towns. Before a missile or an RPG can get from a hostile neighbor into Israeli airspace, Iron Dome launches countermeasures that frustrate that attack. Nehemiah was ahead of his time. And look at his speech. This is an incredibly powerful speech. It displays a superb understanding of total war. Much like, this is a fascinating comparison, these speeches are much like those of Nehemiah's contemporary. His contemporary was a famous Greek fellow named Pericles. And both Pericles' speeches during the Peloponnesian Wars and Nehemiah's speech have one big lesson on them. Same big lesson. The big lesson is don't be afraid. Now, unlike Pericles, Nehemiah says have no fear because of God. Pericles touted the strength of Athens. Nehemiah finds confidence in Yahweh and his attributes. And by the way, for what it's worth... Pericles of Athens lost their war. Nehemiah won his. There's one specific in Nehemiah that also appears in Pericles, appears in most other great war speeches. The leader says, fight for your people. Um, in the 20th century, uh, Stephen Ambrose and Erwin Rommel both hammered this point in their great books. They noted um, that fighting for esoteric ideals is, is like fighting for a specific battle plan. It, it never lasts beyond first contact with the enemy. What lasts... What survives is fighting for the guy next to you. That's what matters. Winston Churchill understood this, and he made sure his war speeches reflected Nehemiah's call to fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. How many of you remember Churchill's famous, we will defend our island speech? How many of you are aware of that speech? Raise your hand. Let me see. Okay. Uh, if you're familiar with that, if you're not, if you see the movie Darkest Hour, you will see it there. Um, Martin McDonald and I we're, we're studying Nehemiah together. In this age, we're studying it by email. And when we got to chapter 4, Martin crafted a really fun update of Churchill's speech based on Nehemiah 4. I thought this was so clever, I put it in your notes. And here's what Martin wrote. Even though Christianity is mocked in many old and famous ways and institutions have fallen or may fall into the grip of Satan and all the odious apparatus of Luciferian rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in our homes we shall fight in our schools and halls. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the courts. We shall defend God's ways, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the campuses. We shall fight on the work floors. We shall fight in the cities and in the fields. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, our churches or a large part of them were subjugated and darkened, then God's kingdom beyond the seas, empowered and guarded by a host of heavenly warriors, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, Christ, with all his glory and might, steps forth to the rescue and liberation of all." Close quote. Yeah, give him a hand. Is that brilliantly done? Did you, did you like the Churchill? Was that? 
I thought it was as good as the, as the Black Panther. Okay, yeah, thank you. All right, that is awesome stuff. Now let's get more into Nehemiah's strategy. We get more detail here. Go to verse 16. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out. We're separated far from one another along the wall. Whenever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work while half the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, and my men, and the guards with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. Yahweh and the Jews devise a brilliant strategy here. This plan shows a great balance of offense and defense. If they hadn't kept up the offensive work of building the wall, the enemies could have just waited them out. I mean, they could only keep watch so long before they were going to have to quit and go out and return to their agriculture. Otherwise, they were going to starve. But as any good football coach will tell you, you can't ignore defense. The, the Jews needed a show of power to, to keep the other guys one-dimensional. Um, th this is why many coaches try really hard to take away the other team's weaker option during a football game. It seems a little counterintuitive, but this is what I did when I coached football. Let's say we were facing a team that was really good at running the ball. Okay, they were great at running the ball. We knew that the first few plays of the game, they were going to try and pass just to keep us honest. So we would call for the first number of plays a really strong pass defense. And that way we would frustrate them. And I knew it would happen. That other coach over there would go, oh, my goodness, we can't pass at all. We've just got to run. And now we reduced them to one dimension. From now on, the rest of the game, I can flood the box, put all my players up there, and, and we can stop them. Nehemiah reduces Sanballat's axis of evil to mere taunts and threats. He cuts off any of their other plan. He cuts off any avenue for physical action. This makes the bad guys one-dimensional. Now, the big gamble in this is the Jews, in essence, are working night and day. Not only does that make for really smelly workers, um, it increases the pressure on pace. They've got to finish this quickly because they can't keep this pace up for long. Speaking of which, turn over to chapter 6 where the work is finished. Let, let's read again chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. 15 and 16. The wall was completed in 52 days, on the 25th day of the month Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized this task had been accomplished by whom, everybody? By our God. Friends, no matter what battles we face, no matter what their outcomes, we need to serve as change agents like Nehemiah. We need to use our powers for good, knowing that God is the one empowering us in the fight. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Now, if this were a fairy tale, it would end at verse 16. It would end right there. But it doesn't. You know why? Because the battles never cease. Go to, go to verse 17. During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. That's the guy that's the head of Ammon. And Tobiah's letters came to them. These are his people, his own nobles, writing letters to Tobiah. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Era. And his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Just as it is easier to die for someone than to live for them, so it is easier to fight for a month than to live with political realities for years. Nehemiah's wall work was only the beginning. 
He now has to live with continual pestering from these bozos for years. I believe it breaks God's heart how modern people are so unbiblically defeatist in our outlook. We are absolute cowards when it comes to the ongoing mess of human conflict. That's why we're addicted to divorce, because we're cowards. By contrast, our hero just soldiers on. He shows no sign of quitting. In fact, in fact, I think there's a touch of humor in his last paragraph. He's smiling at the silliness of these people who just keep writing letters. They keep bashing their heads against God's will. The fools just keep sending letters. You know, it seems that, that Winston Churchill learned from Nehemiah. Have we? Remember what Churchill said? He said, victory is never final. Defeat is never fatal. Courage is all that matters. Close quote. What is a battle of yours that just keeps playing on like a broken record? Is it, is it chronic disease? Is it, is it a consequence of somebody's sin? What, what's your battle that just doesn't end? Is it kids who just won't seem to grow up? Parents who never grew up? What is it in this season of life where you think of something, think of this one battle that just always keeps raging? Now, with that battle in mind, let me ask you, what should we do about it? What's the answer? Oh, we stand strong. We stand strong by God's grace, just like Nehemiah. Now, there, there are two ways to stand strong. We saw them both. Sometimes we live out Nehemiah chapter 4, which is we strategize and we attack the problem with our community and with the Lord. Sometimes we, we live out Nehemiah chapter 6, which means we just keep slogging on through the endless mire of all the sinful and cruddy things around us, all the difficult people around us and inside us, this side of heaven. We stand strong strong in the Lord in either case. Why do we stand strong? Remember Nehemiah 4.14. We do it for those around us, remember? We, we fight because God is with us. You cannot give up because you are not alone. We are interconnected. We are interconnected. We need you. Even when you feel alone, you must be stalwart because you are not alone. As John Donne said so beautifully, you are a piece of the continent, you are a part of the main. No man is an island. My son and I were talking about these things one day, and he wanted to capture this truth in music. So he orchestrated an album, and, and this album is all about the beauty of noble daily battles that don't end. Noble daily battles that don't end. I want you to listen to, to his song, Ultra Sun. Okay, I'm going to play you a little bit of this song, Ultra Sun, which is... Which is based on Nehemiah. Do you hear the work in the beat? 4-4 four, four beat, fast beat. They're working, they're working. Now in just a second, you're gonna hear the attack. You're gonna hear the, the Tobiah, the Sanballat, the, the ongoing attack. It's a kind of a harsh sound, just listen for it. That's it, got it? Now the attack. Now they all rally together. Here are all the instruments. See, they all come together. They're working all together. They come in together. Great, great stuff. As, as you may know, uh, Mike, my son, suffers from debilitating mental illness. And he wrote that from experience. Mike knows that he can't quit, and he doesn't quit because God is with him in the fight, and so are those who are around him. Amen? The battles never cease. Where do we see them? Oh, we see them, we see them everywhere. We ever, we, think about all the things we have to fight. We have to fight our own flesh, right? Our own infernal pride. We, we have to fight our laziness, our workaholism. We, we have to fight our selfishness. We have to fight the selfishness of others. We have to fight spiritual wars against very real but unseen powers that hate us. 
God empowers us to, he calls us to stand strong, to be stalwart against all those evils. And of course, we fight against a world system that hates God. And yet, we work to share the good news of Jesus with every single person, even those who persecute us because God loves them all. That takes us to the how. We find continual strength not in ourselves. Pericles was wrong. We're strengthened by God's Spirit. This is the power for the fight. As Galatians 5.16 says, As I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Remember Pericles, the great Pericles? His tragic flaw was trusting a human source of power, and he lost. Nehemiah recognizes the battle belongs to the Lord. That's why he wins even when the conflicts never cease. If you don't trust Jesus as Savior, you cannot ultimately win. I'm not trying to be harsh. I just love you enough to tell you the truth. Jesus is the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament. He is the Son of God who with the Father sends the Spirit, giving God's people victory. Jesus died on the cross. He surrendered his life so that anyone who trusts in him would be rescued for sin. He paid the price for my sin, sin which alienated me from God. And then, and then he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead, offering eternal life to all who will come to him by faith. By trusting him, you are guaranteed ultimate victory because Jesus conquered even death. With that in mind, let's pray together. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anyone studying with me who does not believe in Jesus. I, I beg you to draw them to you right now. Please, Lord, I beseech you. Open their eyes to truth. Friend, listen, Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is fully God and fully human. He, it is the only reasonable conclusion, the only logical thing based on all the data we have. Jesus is the Savior, and, and he loves you. He loves you and me. He loves you so much that he chose to die on that cross to give up his life, to be the perfect sacrifice for your sin because we are not holy and we could not pay for our sin. Trust him. He came out of that tomb after he paid the price and he leads in everlasting life all who believe in him. Believe on him right now. Trust Jesus as Savior. If, if you just trusted Jesus, if you just engaged with God and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, raise your hand, please. I want to rejoice with you. Good. Amen. Lord, I pray for all these believers in Jesus. I pray for all of us that we will soldier on in your grace, that we will, that we will be stalwart in confidence just like Nehemiah, not because of us, but because of you. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.